You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 48. Today we are asking the question, what are the missing links between investigating incidents and learning from incidents? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode of the podcast, we ask a question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So David, what's today's question? Drew, in episode 39, we talked about whether our incident investigations actually find the root causes. And, and last week, as part of a request, we spoke about the relationship between blame and learning. So I thought this week we'd go a little bit deeper in relation to learning from incidents. I think this is a fairly central topic to the safety profession and safety management activities in organisations. So we talk we talk a lot about learning and particularly in relation to learning after incidents. We we have artefacts in our business, so companies will have lessons learned reports and, and a whole raft of processes to try to facilitate this sort of learning to happen following an incident. I know of some organisations such as Shell that have full-time roles that are purely dedicated towards attempting to embed these learning from incidents that occur inside their organization and other organizations within their industry. We know organizations have dedicated incident investigators and incident review meetings, um, but too often we we also hear, Drew, I'm not sure what you hear, but I hear a lot of safety professionals and, and others within organizations talking about their belief that we just don't learn enough. We seem to ask ourselves questions about why we're having repeat incidents. There's been books written about this. Uh, listeners might be familiar with Professor Hopkins' book about the Texas City refinery accident in 2005. And the title of that book was Failure to Learn. I thought it'd be a really good opportunity to just talk about learning from incidents in relation to the literature. Yeah, no, good choice of topic, David. As far as I can tell, learning from accidents is pretty much the oldest type of safety work that exists. The, the earliest stuff written about safety has been about accidents. And almost from the very start, people have been complaining after an accident about people's failure to learn from previous accidents. So there have been whole special issues, uh, Journal Safety Science, Journal of Contingencies and Crisis Management have both had issues about learning from incidents and failing to learn from incidents. And if you look through this academic work, the sort of common approach is to assume that learning doesn't happen because the investigations aren't good enough. There's a lot of focus by academics on improving accident models, on encouraging investigators to use the improved accident models, on increasing the depth of investigations to get beyond sort of surface causes to get down to latent conditions. My personal opinion, though, and I think we're going to see this established in some of the literature that's reviewed today, is that Organisations don't really want to learn nearly as much as they say they do. So we're happy to say we want to learn, but what we usually mean by that is we're willing to make small technical changes. We're willing to make adjustments to equipment or adjustments to work processes. But it's really hard for an organisation to stop and rethink the whole way they operate or the way that they think about themselves and about the right way to do business. And, and so that potential for broad organisational learning, I don't think is nearly as big as we would like to think it is. 
Yeah, Drew, I'm reminded as you were talking there, it's a bit like the cartoon and in the first cell, it's who wants change and everyone's got their hands up. And in the second cell, it's who wants to change and no one puts their hand up. Um, you know, I think learning from safety incidents, look, it's a subset of broader organisational learning. And the paper we're going to talk about today actually used a broader organisational theory of learning by Argurus and Schoen. And, and they had this generic learning scheme first proposed in the late 1970s. It's still widely regarded today and pretty simple model. And, and it's probably the pretty simple models that stand the test of time, Drew, that they say organisational learning requires a learner, it requires a learning process, and it requires a learning product. So we're going to speak about that as we go through the paper today. The, you know, who's the learner, what's the learning process, and what's the learning product? So according to uh, this theory, Drew, all organisational learning starts with a collection of information, so the learning product, and, and we would think of this as like the investigation process that leads to an investigation report. Then it's followed by some kind of processing, some kind of sharing, some kind of interpretation, you know, processes that have processing of that information within the organisation, and then the storing of that information, the institutionalisation of it, which generates the actual learning outcomes that we try to, to see and observe. The other thing we should probably mention here that all is it's probably where most people have actually heard of Argus's work is the idea of single loop learning or double loop learning. And so inside this learning process, the idea is that most of the time we do it in a very simple, almost like a thermostat type way. So we've got some governing variables, the things that we want to keep within acceptable limits. We've got some strategies we use to manage those things that we want to keep. And we have consequences of each of the strategies. And the consequences might be intended or unintended. So when our strategies are working well, we're really just monitoring the situation we're in, picking a strategy and then getting back on track. And we're still learning. We're getting better at implementing the strategies. We're getting better at choosing the strategies. But Argus says that there's this other type of learning where we question and rethink that whole process. We examine the strategies we're using, we throw out some, we find some new strategies. We might even question what variables we're monitoring and managing and try to change that set of variables. And that double loop learning requires us to be very open and reflective about our own reasoning, um, and in particular, publicly testing the assumptions that we're making. And Agra says that while most people, if you ask them how do they learn or how do they run their organisation, that's exactly what they'd say they'd do. But in practice, most people are much more defensive than they think they are. They make a lot of assumptions and beliefs and they keep those private and untested. It's not safe to say exactly what you really think, particularly in times of organisational crisis. So as a result, people tend to lock into that single loop learning where they're refining the way they're doing things now rather than challenging the underlying assumptions. Andrew, I think the traditional approach to learning from incidents that we apply in, in our organisations goes something along the lines of, you know, we do a careful analysis or a careful incident investigation. We, a small group of people, distill and formulate the lessons to be learnt. We send these around our company on a one or two page form, you know, some kind of flash report or safety alert or lessons learned report. And then we think that this magically leads to some kind of future prevention of incidents. But then as the title, title of this episode you know, may suggest, Drew, there might be some missing links in this formula that we apply within our company. So let's, let's dive in and talk about the paper. Okay, so the paper we're going to talk about is one that David found. It's called What is Learning? 
A review of the safety literature to define learning from incidents, accidents, and disasters. This is actually a new journal, I think. I don't think we've published one from the Journal of Contingencies and Crisis Management before. Sorry, new, new for us on the podcast, very old journal. Uh, the paper's in 2014. Uh, authors are Linda Dropstein and Frank Goldenmund. Uh, Frank's actually one of the editors of Safety Science now. Andrew, I think I did a bit of um, looking because I hadn't read anything or I wasn't aware that I'd read anything from Linda Dropstein before, but um, I went and had a look and it looks like she's published a whole lot of articles relating to this topic of learning from incidents. And it seems she took quite an interest in this topic around 2012 to 2015. And she's published a number of other papers, for example, titled Critical Steps in Learning from Incidents and Why Do Organisations Not Learn from Incidents? And assessing the propensity to learn from safety-related events. So there's, you know, five or six papers. They're all published in really reputable journals. Some of it's empirical work and all published with really reputable co-authors as well, um, second and third authors. So it, uh, it was really pleasing to sort of find this little little body of work there um, around this topic. So Drew, the, as mentioned in the title, this was a literature review and we've used these these literature reviews on the, on the podcast before because it's a good way of getting kind of broadly across a particular question. And so the authors had three aims with this paper. They wanted to contribute to, to a more comprehensive knowledge of, you know, what the literature says about learning from incidents. They wanted to try to use this model of organisational learning to identify possible explanations for, you know, ineffective or, or inefficient learning that goes on within safety. And then they wanted to. They they also wanted to establish, you know, what where the gaps in the research was, so that we could sort of have a forward research agenda to try to address some of the things that we don't we don't really know. So that's a pretty cool way to do a literature review: is to take an existing model of how things work, and then find all of the papers and fit them into that model and show where the gaps are or where there's any sort of controversy. So the method's fairly standard. The authors searched databases of papers looking for mentions of organizations, learning, incidents and accidents, and safety. And then they stripped out anything to do with healthcare, so things with keywords like nursing healthcare, uh, just because there's a huge amount of very specific information on patient safety that doesn't really fit in with the rest of the literature. It's its own sort of bubble. Andrew, the search found, they found 113 papers and they also pulled out three unpublished PhD theses because they considered these three unpublished theses to be essential for the review. And I suppose as an aside, Drew, you get involved in supervising a lot of PhD and master's research. How much, how much useful research is kind of left inside unpublished PhD and master's theses that, um, you know, just don't get read? The habit of making sure that every PhD student produces a couple of published academic papers is really fairly recent. Certainly, I encourage all of my own students to basically publish everything before they produce their final thesis. But that's by no means the way a lot of people do their PhD theses. And so particularly if someone does their thesis and then leaves academia, or they go straight on to their next work and they don't have time to go back and publish it as papers, then it just sits in this PhD thesis. And most search engines don't pick up theses. They're usually only sort of categorised, you need to go directly to the institution. So, you know, if you don't know that the thesis exists, you're hardly likely to find it by, an by just an internet search. And you know, there's some really great stuff. If you think you're a typical published paper, is 10,000 words at most. 
a typical thesis is a hundred thousand words. So some of these go into much, much greater depth. You know, inside that thesis, there is a whole study. There's a whole deep literature review of the topic, stuff that maybe no one has made public. Yeah, Drew, I was fortunate to um, be able to publish most of most of my stuff, um, or, or we were able to do that at least with my with my PhD, and it's really helpful. And I see sometimes Google Scholar starts to pick up some of these institutional catalogs now of, of PhD theses, but it's by no means um, easy to get your hands on those. So. First of all, they end up with 81 articles after they stripped out the healthcare ones and ones that weren't in English. Then they took another 21 out because they were covering, they weren't really covering learning. They were talking about risk management or, or safety culture or some other topic, not, not learning. And then 14 more papers were excluded because they're really specific about either a particular incident and a particular learning and didn't really have any generalizable information. So they were left with, with 44 articles in these three theses. Drew, they then? The first thing they did was they analysed them against a kind of um, empirical classification criteria. I, I hadn't seen this before. Do you want to just describe you know, that step of what they did? So the idea is that there's a bit of a research life cycle that starts off with observing and describing the world, then turning the world into theories. Sometimes that's called an inductive step. Then there's turning that theory into hypotheses. Sometimes that's called a deductive step. And then there's testing those hypotheses. And then there's evaluating the hypotheses. That's sort of a social science version of the scientific method. It's a bit of a stretch to say that research really happens like that. But at least in this paper, they seemed to be able to sort things fairly well. I think the main motivation for doing that is really just to separate out stuff that is directly empirical versus stuff which is, I guess the kind way to talk about it is theory building. The less kind of it is to say it's really just writing essays, talking about this topic without really investigating the topic. Yeah, Drew, and I think they made the statement in the, well, they did make the statement in the paper, which gets made in a lot of systemic literature reviews that we, I think we've said this a number of times on the podcast that, you know, the author said that there was quite a lack of, even though there was quite a lot written on the topic, there was a lack of actual research that had been done, um, empirical research that had been done to kind of test particular aspects of theories. So in this literature review, they broadly covered three areas, Drew. They, they, they talked about the learning of the lessons. So the incidents become the input to learning. So the identification of the causes and the actual incident investigation process. So how that, how that you know, lesson learning kind of happens right up front. And then kind of like how, what the process, end-to-end process is of sort of, like we said earlier, you know, processing that learning information, sharing that learning information, and, um, and then how that gets embedded into the organization. And then they spoke also from the literature about all the conditions for learning or, or the barriers to learning. And so the things that we're going to talk about, three things there is going to be organizational trust, which we spoke about last week um, and, and gives us a bit more. Um, they actually extensively referenced the paper that we spoke about last week, Drew, within within this paper. Also, the impact of the incident, which is sometimes referred to as the incident intensity, which is, you know, the more serious and the more scary the incident, the more propensity there is for learning. doesn't mean there's more learning, just means there's there's more propensity for it. And then the people involved, you know, and, and what the different actors in the learning process, um, you know, how they contribute to learning or not. So, Drew, we might just go through each one of these um, one at a time and talk about the findings from the literature review. So do you want to maybe kick off with the learning processes? Sure. So one of the things that they 
found fairly quickly in the literature review is that there are lots of models that people propose for learning from incidents. And models is probably overstating it. These tend to just be sort of steps of a process. So it sort of lays out the path that you need to follow from having the incident to learning having happened. And so most of those models have different numbers of steps. I think the shortest one is 14, the longest one is 13. But you're broadly speaking, there's collecting the information, there's analyzing it, there's selecting the lessons, there's planning communication, doing the communication, implement the recommendations or the learnings and evaluate. And so if you sort of think about the first couple of those steps are the ones that we do in the accident investigation itself, collecting information, analyzing it, selecting lessons. That's investigating the incident, coming up with the recommendations. But it's those other steps, the communicating of that knowledge, where the literature is very skeptical about the way we currently do it. Because it's not just enough to get to the end of the incident and have the recommendations. There's a need to share it. And using lessons learned systems or using written uh, written alerts like just you know, like safety bulletins is generally ineffective for communicating the lessons from an accident the general conclusion is that ne there needs to be some sort of face-to-face -face sharing of experiences in fact the literature highlights person-to-person -person sharing not just you so you know one-on-one -on -one storytelling to facilitate and this happening sort of locally throughout the organization rather than the broadcast systems that we tend to use. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. I think we'll come back at the practical takeaways and talk a little bit more about that as well, because I think they were quite blunt from the review of the literature that, that just to restate that point that you made, that the way that we typically communicate and share these the lessons through our systems and, and through, you know, short form written documents is, is sort of largely ineffective or, or, or just doesn't have the I suppose, the opportunity to be effective because that's not the way that we learn. One of the things they highlight, which is really fairly speculative in the literature specifically about accidents, but is well established in general learning literature, is that you need some sort of participation for learning. So, you know, even just face-to-face -face learning where someone comes and tells you about something, you're unlikely to learn. You learn by engaging with the material. So actually, you know, working with the material, generating new ideas about that material, um, rather than just use, you know, having it given to you or sent to you in an email. I think particularly where the learning, what we're talking about here in terms of learning is we're actually talking about change, sort of either belief or behavior type type change as a, as a result. So someone updating their mental model of work or or risk or someone actually changing the things that they do. So we're not just talking about people remembering certain facts or pieces of knowledge. We're trying to to motivate change, and definitely, Drew. I think that's that's something that is well established in the learning literature that people have to be, you know, participants in. Dave, this might be something that you meant to get onto when we get to the practical takeaways. But one of the things that I've seen that I really liked don't tend to see this sort of organisation wide, but I've seen local supervisors use this. Is you some supervisors they'll get sent a safety alert or a bulletin and they'll just read it out often sort of in a monotone go through the exact words they have to say toss it off and then get onto the real stuff uh, but i have seen people sort of pick up a safety bulletin and then say a couple of things about it and then you know ask their team this this obviously doesn't apply directly to us but what can we sort of find parallels or learn from this incident 
And so actually get their work team engaging in talking about and discussing and trying to generate new ideas from a safety bulletin. Yeah, I think definitely that sort of a process done effectively would um, you know, create the real possibility for the learning. And, and it's a good segue there, Drew, to the findings of the review in relation to the conditions for learning. So the first condition there that we I mentioned and we spoke about last week was organizational trust. So like I said, this paper really confirms the answer that we gave last week to our question about does blame sort of get in the way of learning? Really here, they just say, look, learning is enabled by a culture where openness and trust is is valued. We spoke about that, like I said, last week. And then so situations where trust is absence, um, it's, it's sort of said that that's created due to political processes, which we spoke quite a lot about, about social and political processes in episode 39 about root cause, Drew, and also about power conflicts, anxiety, blame. So so we've covered those topics on the podcast before, but just another reinforcement, even when we're talking about learning from incidents after the investigation process has occurred, that the organisational climate around trust will be a big factor in whether people generate new ideas and, and change the way that they think and the things that they do. This next bit, though, David, I found a little bit counterintuitive. Because they do say that the size of an incident, both in terms of its magnitude, severity, its importance, even outside scrutiny, is something that increases the amount of learning, that that's sort of one of the conditions, which almost sort of runs counter to that idea of trust, because you expect that when you've got outside scrutiny, when you've got a more major incident, that there is less willingness to talk about it, less trust. But the findings seem to be generally that the more important an issue was and the more there was outside interest from media or other stakeholders, the more there was likelihood of at least change, if not learning. Yeah, and I think, Drew, there's a couple of there – there was a few pieces of information reflected from the literature review in this paper around that that I think one of the possibilities that they spoke to from one of the papers that was reviewed was that the bigger the event, the actual more conversation that goes on in the organization about it. So that sharing step after the, you know, about what, even if it's like um, rumors or speculation inside the investigation report or, or outside, they just said there's this greater talking going on about that event, which just creates more opportunity for learning and, and idea generation and, and change to occur. Whereas something that's, you know, quite minor and, you know, doesn't get much airtime in the organization. So I think I think that was one that I could say, oh, yeah, I could understand that when we think about learning as a social process and the sharing of the information about the incident um, between people sort of face to face around water coolers and in lunchrooms, I could see that that would create an opportunity for more learning. Yeah, that makes sense. The only other thing, Drew, they they contradicted a little bit in that because they we haven't really talked about like near miss events or or that. And so learning from incidents or learning from from near incidents, if you like. They also said that although at times, like what you said, the political pressures and, and management management not wanting to uh, admit any failings, that get that increases, that, that politicisation of the process increases with scrutiny as well. So there's sort of these con- constraining and enabling forces going on. You know, the more the event, the more talk, the more opportunity for learning, but also the bigger the event, the more likely things are to be sort of shut down and, and sort of tied up in a neat bow. So, so should we move on to talk about the people involved? Um, there's some really interesting things said about sort of people in different positions along that learning chain, starting with the uh, very actual source of the information, the people that you're talking to. Yeah, Drew, I think they, they said, you know, they, they talked first of all about, you know, before you can learn, you need to find out about the incident occurring. So, you know, we talk about a reporting or some people talk about a reporting culture, you know, your people... Uh, your eyes and ears and 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 you only know what they what they tell you so 
the fact that someone's actually got to report the incident in the first place. And then when you start your investigation, you're interviewing the people involved and that's the main source of your information. That's kind of the, the majority of your information about the incident that feeds right in at the start of the funnel into the learning process comes from the people who are involved. And then we have a whole heap of almost contradictory information about the investigators of the incident. Everyone seems to agree that the investigators are important. But then we have this wish list of conditions for the investigators that they need to be independent and have expertise. Uh, but then they also need to have close knowledge of the work processes and the sector that's being investigated and about safety. So outsiders who are also complete insiders. Yeah, it's like, you know, Dave Woods says four eyes of the safety profession, you know, involved as well as being independent, um, informed and informative, you know, so you've got to be separate, but you've got to be close. And I think that's attention in in safety roles and it's attention in investigation roles. But I think the the point here, Drew, which which I agree with is um again, we're right at the start of the process around around the learning process and and the quality of the investigation uh, you know, creates the possibility for, you know, the double loop learning that we spoke about. It creates a whole raft of possibility to bring certain stakeholders into the investigation process to actually start to enable that learning to occur as the investigation is taking place. There's a whole lot of things that investigators can do to really create the conditions through the investigation process for learning to you know, be, be maximised or be given the best opportunity of occurring. So I think we, we send people off on two-day investigation training courses, but I'm not sure our organisations, we really, we really have strong, capable investigators as well as we should have. Yeah, something I've noticed when talking to people who are concerned about the quality of investigations in their organisation is very often people are concerned about correct application of the model and correct formatting of the report. Yeah, they want high quality investigations as in these very consistent, neat things. But there are more important attributes here than just consistency. And, and I think one of these big ones is this ability to produce things that are credible so that the rest of the organization recognizes that this is the truth about their organization, but also have that just enough of a reflective component laying bare the assumptions that are made when we think about the work so that we can have conversations that move beyond just restoring the work to the way it was before. Yeah, Andrew, they talk about particularly moving the organization beyond uh, just restoring it. You know, the, the literature talks a lot about management support, which will come as no surprise to our listeners, but sort of saying that, you know, it's managers that create the opportunities for learning and change in the organization. So, so, so basically, management support is required for any learning to really take place in, inside the organization. So if management are not, uh, I suppose, interested in thinking differently about the way that the business functions, then the business is not going to change the way that it functions. So that's probably a good point then to talk about what we need from the managers. The big thing is that the people who are told then about the lessons need to be capable of receiving and responding to the lessons as feedback. So as something that they can reflect on for their own performance and behavior. And the literature lists a number of things, reasons, because uh, they're too busy, because they're overconfident with the way things are now, they have fixed ways of thinking, uh, or a fear of being wrong. Uh, something that gets mentioned in the double loop learning is this contradiction between ability to change and learn and fear of being wrong. You know, you've got to admit that you are wrong now in order to become correct in the future. If you're not willing to admit that you might be wrong now, then you've got no chance of correcting and changing what you're currently thinking. 
So Drew, we've um we've sort of gone through the findings there about the learning processes, like mostly mostly in the safety literature, they're sequential kind of processes, but there's a heavy sort of social process that's related to whether learning actually happens, not whether this, the process gets followed, but whether learning actually happens. And then these conditions around trust and incident intensity and and the different people or the actors involved in in the play, if you like. So in terms of a general discussion now, before we get onto the practical takeaways, let's go back to this model now. Let's tie it all back to this organizational model around the the learning product, the learning processes, and the learner. So you know, there's many factors that 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 help or hinder, like we've we've mentioned on the way through. But the learning product itself that ties back to the um, Argus and Schoen model is that, you know, the incident description itself and the causes of that incident are the learning product. That's kind of what. So when we say what do we want people to learn, we actually want people to learn about the incident, learn about what caused it, and therefore what could be done to to not have it in the future. So do you agree, Drew? Is that the way you think about kind of like the learning product? Like what are we actually trying to get people to? To acquire understanding of? In, in a sense, I think just learning directly about what happened is not always useful learning. We need to have something inside that product, which is something that we don't know already. So if people pick up that report and there's nothing in it that surprises them, then they're not going to learn anything from it. It's, it's got to be, it's got to contain new knowledge in that investigation. If it's just the same as 50 other investigation reports of similar incidents that all come to the same conclusions, then, yeah, it's like having already read every textbook on a, book on a subject, having yet another textbook on that subject. It's not going to tell you something new. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I just had a thought then, Drew, that we might we haven't really talked about the difference between sort of actions and recommendations and learning. Um, and I think those two are, I mean, I definitely have those two things as distinct in my mind that, you know, an investigation should come up with with actions to address kind of like the risks involved that obviously need to be perhaps better managed. But then also then learning might not just be tell everyone about those actions. Learning will be, you know, what do we learn about our organization as a result of this? How do we need to change the way the organization runs as a result? And that could be quite different to just a list of actions. Is that, I mean, would you agree with that? Would you disagree with that? I I think that if an investigation finds immediate things that need to be fixed to make the situation safe, then it's got to have actions. I, I don't think every investigation finds those things, but if there is a particular, you know, broken piece of equipment, broken process design that needs to be fixed, then yes, you've got to have immediate actions. But the important thing is that taking those actions shouldn't be the point at which we close off the opportunity to learn. So I'd actually prefer that investigations didn't have recommendations beyond that, that they have instead things that we have learned or observed and then other people can interact with those things, learn from them, and turn them into recommendations. Yeah, I like I like that description that you've given there, Drew. Good advice in conjunction with the episode we did on root cause investigations, I think. And and so after the, that's the learning product we're talking about, the lessons themselves, and then the learning process, which is sort of split down into kind of I, I, I summarise that into four steps, Drew. Like you know, you know, acquire, share, use, and store. So. The incident investigation is the knowledge acquisition process. So we're, like you said, Drew, we're get, we're finding out things we didn't know before. We're acquiring knowledge. We're we're getting a different understanding of the way that our organisation functions. And then we've got this communication and knowledge sharing step, which is crucial. Which is how that information flows from the investigation flows and gets discussed and debated and and engaged with by others in the organisation who we want the learning 
to take place with. And then a follow-up process, Drew, which we talk a lot about evaluation in the podcast as well, but talked about the process needs to actually see whether that knowledge is being used, to see whether things are being done in the way that's consistent with the lessons that have been learned. And then a way of storing that information as part of the organization's collective memory. So I suppose that's the institutionalization step. So how does that knowledge go from a collective awareness inside the heads of people to be something that's known by the organization? So then the next year and the next year when new people come into the business, they get the benefit of that of that learning um, as well, long after the, the incidents occurred. Important to point out here that that storing of information is in memory, not in some dusty lessons learned system. Dave, we were talking about PhD student projects that never sort of make it to the light. Uh, there's a great master's project sitting in an archive somewhere called Lessons Learned About Lessons Learned Systems. And the, the biggest lesson about lessons learned systems is that no one learns lessons from them. One whole organization there, every project was required to type in three keywords about the new project into the lessons learned system and implement the things that they found into their project plan. And the whole organization had just developed this skill at choosing keywords that produced nothing just to make sure that they weren't sort of locked into this bureaucratic system. Yep. So there you go. That's the way that organizations work. And and that's why maybe why learning's difficult, you know, because people people are gonna learn something when they when they're motivated to learn and when they, they have some kind of belief that they need to learn something new. And so that's that's a good the last piece there is the learner, like we said, learning product, learning process, and then the learner themselves. So I, I put there, Drew, and, and you've said this to me before that, you know, how would you judge the success of an incident investigation? And I think you once told me that, you know, you would consider it incident invest the success of an incident investigation to be related to how much the incident investigator themselves actually learnt in regards to things that they didn't know before the investigation started. Yeah. So so, so that's the learning product that the investigator needs to learn something. And then that learning needs to carry through that learning process right down to the end users. And so we test whether the investigation is a success if the investigators learn something. We test if the learning process has been a success, if there has been some sort of change within the organization that embeds that learning. And this literature really focuses, which um, which I think is is you know a good first practical takeaway, that it's the managers that need to lead the change and embed the learning. And so, you know, these latent conditions and this double loop learning is kind of driven by management. So I think in organizations, a lot of the time, we we think about the lessons learned as being things that the people who are exposed to the risk or the workforce need to do. So we create these lessons learned reports. We send them around the organization. Like you said, Drew, you know, a supervisor stands up uh, in front of a toolbox talk and tries to make sure that the workers have, have learned the lessons and I think the literature, the safety literature here says it's actually about managers learning the lessons, not so much about the workers learning the lessons. Um, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I think if you're an organization, the first practical takeaway I'll do is, you know, send your lessons learned reports to your, to your management and ask them to tell you what they're going to do differently as a result, rather than sort of firing them at your workforce. Dave, am I allowed to refer to ForgeWorks material in this podcast? Yeah, if you can. Because uh, there's, some, there's, there's something you wrote recently about communication processes that I really liked, which was sort of the difference between one-way communication, two-way communication, and open communication. That you know, in a immature bureaucratic organisation, you've just got this sort of idea of sending information out. It's 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 information sharing. It's not communication. When you're more advanced than that, it's two-way. You're sending information out and you're listening to what people are telling you. 
But for learning from incidents, what we really want is open communication. We want people throughout the organization talking about this incident, engaging with the information from it, and individually and in teams deciding what they're going to do about it locally. Yeah, I agree, Drew. I think I learned something from colleague Adam Johns when I talked about that top-down communication where he said it was, uh, you know, referred to as like a one-to-many sort of broadcast communications, like, you know, announcing over the radio or, or TV just um, in your organisation. I think the way our lessons learned systems are done in organisations is a bit like that broadcast model, which is we write something down and we send it to 2,000 people and tell them to all read the same thing. And I think like what you said, Drew, I think really real learning happens when it's um, an open, open and engaging kind of face-to-face or as close to these days dialogue process that creates some ideation process that lets people get motivated and and reflective and and engaged around what might need to be different so very different to the way that our i think the way that many of our listeners organizations would think about what they do when they get their investigation report and how they try to make sure the lessons get learned um so the second practical takeaway is something that we've already touched on which is that the incident investigation process has to contain within it some sort of acquired knowledge. So we've got to have investigations which finish with telling us something that we can then start. And so the potential for the organisation to reflect about itself starts with an investigation which lays bare its assumptions, which lays bare its thinking, its beliefs, and creates that potential for reflection beyond just immediate actions to restore the situation. Yeah, and I think also in the in the paper, Drew had talked about the importance of, you know, of different people being engaged in that investigation process to to start that learning and start that reflection, both managers as well as the people involved in the incident and getting really broad stakeholder engagement in the investigation process as opposed to a an invest a one investigator just, you know, running the process and writing the report themselves. So so David, how would you manage that resource wide? Resource-wise, does that mean that we just need to do fewer investigations in order to do them of higher quality? Yeah, I think it's um that might well be the case. I mean, I think that might well be the case as an organisation. You you might want to design some kind of criteria for learning potential around an event. So I don't know what that looks like. So it, it might not be as blunt as just actual or potential consequence, but creating some criteria for what the learning opportunity looks like with with this particular event. And if you find something that fits that sort of a learning opportunity, then you run this really, really deep um, kind of different investigation and learning process around it. That'd be how I think off the top of my head, I suppose, Drew. And then, yeah, absolutely investing time and resource. I mean, these are things that have happened in your business that give you a chance to reflect on how you run your business. So um, I know some people who are probably more in the safety two space, you know, and we talk about learning from normal work or not just learning from incidents, but hey, look, the incidents are the things that have happened. And there's, um, I think we're leaving a lot on the table in our organisations at the moment. So final takeaway we've got here is the evaluation process, which is actually testing to see if learning has occurred. That sort of follow-up is something that I don't think any of us do particularly well. Going back sometime after an incident and after the sharing and seeing what is actually different and ideally doing that before we have another incident to prompt us to go and look and find out that the recommendations from the last one really didn't make any sort of change. And I think, Drew, we, we sort of mentioned in episode 39, and I've had a lot of really positive feedback on this comment about thinking about the outcomes that you want your corrective actions and recommendations to address. So I think if you recall in that in that episode, we said we suggested something like, you know, list the by all means list the list the action or the corrective action, but actually list the outcome you're trying to get to, which is to, you know, improve communication or what you're trying to do. And I think 
I'd take that same approach to here with this evaluating lessons is be really clear with, you know, out of the investigation is, you know, what are the out, what are the things that you think need to be different in your organization? And they're the things that people need to obviously learn and put into place and then try to be as specific as you can. So you can go and actually test to see whether those outcomes are in fact in place in your business or not. So you sort of got to define them in the, I think you got to define them before you start the learning process. So then you can evaluate whether they've been learned or not. Thanks for that, David. So is there anything that we want to hear from our listeners? Look, I think those those sort of two really interesting points that might be different to the way that we run safety or the way that we think about running safety a lot of the time. So anyone who's got any face-to-face learning processes to create learning from incidents and, you know, I think or people who maybe people are experimenting with learning teams around incidents or things like that, are you seeing a change in in learning that's happening in your organization or, you know, are you... You know, and, and I think secondary to that is, do you have any of these evaluation processes in place to test, you know, how well you're learning from incidents or not? So just really keen to see if anyone's sort of, you know, are people just, are, you know, I suppose lots of people will be sending out lessons learned reports and closing out actions in their incident database. But I'm just, I'm just curious to know listeners that are sort of playing with more different learning processes, learning evaluation processes. So, David, our question for this week was, what are the missing links between investigating incidents and learning from incidents? So I think the two, I think there's two missing links here, Drew, in our normal um, incident investigation learning process. I think the, the number one missing link is the way that we share information and sharing information consistent with the organisational learning theory. And also the way that we, you know, we don't really follow up whether learning has been embedded in our business. So, you know, we get to the events investigation report and then we close out the actions. But those two, those are the two missing links, I think, the way we share and the way we follow up. Okay, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. As always, contact us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 